0: Morning. Uh, today's uh, scripture reading comes from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. This is from the New Revised Standard Version. Now you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra what persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But the wicked people and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you, Chris, and thank you, Chris and Sally, for the music this morning and our chancel choir on the screen. And we know, the next idea looks like we will be able to sing along more so than we have been. So uh, the guidelines are slowly going away, and we are we are certainly grateful for that. Want to begin a new series today on Methodist theology and. Beliefs and our foundational documents and, and doctrines that we have built this church on, that God has built this United Methodist Church on across the centuries. And Some of this will be old school to you. You've known it for a long time. Some of it may be a little bit new. And I always welcome your questions and comments and suggestions and uh, Anything that might spur conversation, please feel free to to contact me. Methodist folk around the world owe their theology, their structure, and enthusiasm to our founder, John Wesley. We hear the name a lot. We see his pictures around United Methodist Church buildings and in other places. I have in my office some statues of John Wesley. In fact, I have a John Wesley bobblehead. And... uh, (laughs) I had a woman in my last church who said she had a Chipper Jones bobblehead and I offered to trade with her and she would not take that trade, so um, you can get the John Wesley bobblehead through Cokesbury. They're not rare, but they are interesting. He was born to Samuel and Susanna Wesley in the early 18th century in the village of Epworth, England. If you've never had a chance to do the Wesley Heritage Tour, I would recommend that to you when we are able to freely travel again. Samuel Wesley was an Anglican priest, and he was rector of the Epworth Parish Church. Susanna was a woman of uncommon zeal and intelligence and intellect and character who was most likely the most important influence in John Wesley's life. Throughout his boyhood and his student years and his early priesthood, Wesley focused life focused on life rigorously. He tried to maintain the disciplines of a religion that at times seemed heavy to him and cumbersome and too much on the side of rules and regulations. But his efforts led ultimately to a sense of despair and failure and anxiety about his relationship to God. And then, as most all Methodists know, at a prayer meeting on Aldersgate Street in London, May 24th, Seventeen thirty-eight. He discovered what the Apostle Paul and what Martin Luther before him had learned and so many others that a new relationship with God comes through faith in Christ, not through our own efforts. In addition, he experienced that absolute assurance that his sins had been taken away from him, that he had been forgiven, that he was in right relationship with God and he was free from the law of sin and death. 1766, three persons Philip Embry, Robert Strawbridge, Barbara Heck began missionary work in the American colonies. Three years later Wesley sent Richard Boardman, Joseph Pilmore to the colonies and in 1771 he sent Francis Asbury who was destined to become the father of American Methodism and he was through the South. There are places, markers, you can see where, where Francis Asbury actually was and the difference he made in establishing Methodism in this country. By the close of the War for Independence, there were nearly 15,000 Methodists in America and about 80 lay preachers. However, the War for Independence had caused a lot of the preachers or the priests who are still part of the Anglican Church to go home. They were on the other side, so to speak, during the war and Holy Communion became virtually impossible for a lot of folks because the traveling preachers and priests could not come around to where everyone was. Now, in response to this situation, Wesley ordained Dr. Thomas Koch and sent him as a superintendent to America, where he was to ordain Francis Asbury as the second superintendent or bishop and to establish an American Methodist church. Christmas Eve, 1784, some of you may have read and remember the Christmas conference. Some 60 lay preachers met with Coke and Asbury. Their names were later combined for our book division, Cokesbury. Wesley had sent a form for Sunday worship, and he had sent a simplified version of the Book of Common Prayer and an editorial version of the Anglican Articles of Religion. At this historic Christmas conference, the American Methodist Church elected, ordained, and consecrated Bishops Coke and Asbury. They edited and adopted the liturgy and the doctrinal statements that were sent by John Wesley to this country, and they prayerfully established the Methodist Episcopal Church in America. Today, i want to use the remainder of our time to focus on what is a very basic belief of our faith, but one we need to talk about from time to time, one we need certainly to pray about, and that is a very crucial United Methodist belief about the authority of the Holy Scriptures. From the first stirrings of the Methodist movement in England and America, Methodists have consistently lifted up the Bible as their authority, a book of authority. John Wesley's often quoted creed, let me be a man of one book, has permeated the theological and liturgical and lifestyle of Methodists across the years, across um, centuries now. With Wesley, we affirm that all scripture is inspired of God and contains everything essential for us to know the way to salvation through Christ. Explanatory notes on the New Testament, Wesley wrote, The Spirit of God not only once inspired those who wrote it, but continually inspires, supernaturally assists, those who read the Scriptures with earnest prayer. hence yes, it is so profitable. Sorry, I'm losing something here. So profitable for doctrine, for instruction of the ignorant, for the reproof of the conviction of sin or those who are in error or sin, for the correction or the amendment of where we've gone wrong and we need to be back on the right path, for instructing and training children in the right, right way. Wesley sent to the Christmas conference in 1784 an edited version of the Anglican Articles of Religion, they were adopted by the conference and became the Articles of Faith or the Articles of Religion for the Methodist Church in this country. One of our foundation documents, Article 5 of the Articles of Religion is entitled Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. And it states the Holy Scriptures contain all things necessary so to salvation so that whatever is not read therein nor may be proved thereby is not to be required of anyone to be believed as an article of faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. In the name of the Holy Scripture, we do understand those canonical books of the Bible, those that have been approved by the church councils of old, of the Old and New Testament, of whose authority there was never any doubt in the church, he said. The first sentence of this article is the bedrock. Isn't it of all Protestant faith? The Bible contains all necessary things for salvation. It calls on us to rely on Christ. So Christians believe that the purpose of all Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is to lead us to Christ. In 1976, and the ordination requirements and steps have changed in the Methodist Church a little bit since when I started but in 1976, I was ordained a deacon, and I was asked the question, do you unfaintedly, unfeignedly, that's a word we don't use a lot anymore, unfaintedly believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testament? My answer then was, and my answer now is, I do so believe. In 1979, I was ordained an elder, and I was asked the question, are you persuaded that the Holy Scriptures contain all truths required for eternal salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? And are you determined out of the same Holy Scriptures so to instruct the people who are committed to your charge that they may enter into life eternal? My answer then and my answer now is still, I am so persuaded and determined by the grace of God. Article 6 of the Articles of Religion follows closely. It says in essence that we find no contradiction between the scriptures of the Old and the New Testaments, and that we fully accept the Old Testament. Bishop Nolan B. he died a few years ago. He was still teaching at the Candler School of Theology when I was there, and he was teaching up until his mid-90s, quite a character. And this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but I think it contains much truth. He said, in the Old Testament, the new lies hidden. In the new, the old stands revealed. And I think there's much, much truth there. We could talk about that. We will talk about it, I hope, in Bible studies and worship services in days to come. Now, even though Methodists have always held inspired Scripture to be their ultimate authority, our heritage has protected us, and this is important, protected us from a narrow literalism and also protected us from what one writer said, a radical interpretation of the Bible. In addition to its emphasis on the supreme authority of Scripture, early Methodism focused on the importance of human reason and church tradition and the experience of the Holy Spirit. If he talked about some of those things in Connect worship over the last few weeks. Whenever the Bible and other areas of recognizing the truth are in conflict, Methodists seek to follow Scripture. But we try to guard against erratic interpretation of Scripture. And we've all heard some interpretations of Scripture that make us want to just scratch our heads and say, What? Where did that come from? And it's a fundamental principle with us, reason, that religion and reason go hand in hand. And Wesley said that all irrational religion is false religion. And one of the greatest compliments I think I ever heard paid to Methodism was someone who said years ago, when I enter a Methodist church on Sunday morning, I don't feel like I have to put my brain on the shelf in the narthex. And so it is, reason is important. In addition, Wesley left to modern Methodism a reverence for the early writings and theological doctrines of the early church, the, the mothers of the fathers of the early church. And finally, fearful that the evidence of tradition and reason might lead to some kind of cold formalism, if we just go through the form, if we just keep the rules, Wesley added to that the image of God, Created on our spirits, impressed on our spirits, a fountain of love and peace. The image of God created in us, springing up to eternal life. And he said, "I I believe this to be the strongest evidence of the Christian faith. The living of the Holy Spirit in us. The belief in our hearts that yes, this is real. And it does make a difference. And it's more important than anything else we might encounter. It is true that the great Protestant watchword of sola scriptura, or scripture only, was fundamental in Wesley's doctrine, but both early and late in his ministry, he interpreted sola to mean primarily, rather than solely or exclusively. In other words, scripture was primary, was the touchstone for John Wesley's theologizing, but it wasn't the only source. We've just mentioned reason, tradition, and experience. And together with Scripture, they form what folks over the years have come to call John Wesley's quadrilateral, Scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. How do we know what to believe? How do we know what's real and what we need to set aside? We can use that quadrilateral, and we can prayerfully examine our beliefs and decide what to keep, what to set aside. If the Bible is our primary source as United Methodist Christians, what about areas of interpretation? Biblical interpretation, arguments about that, I think have caused more conflict within local churches and within denominational structures than anything else I can imagine. Any other one issue. So this area of interpretation, let me just lift up one area. We can talk later about other ways to think about this, but um, consider this, if you will. One problem is interpretation it's when we fail to realize that the scriptures the writers of the scriptures had different mindsets and different approaches to life and the reason and the writing than we do in Matthew Mark and Luke we have accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and in all three of those accounts Matthew Mark and Luke the similar Gospels the synoptic Gospels Jesus dies on a Friday dies on Friday. In John's gospel, he's put to death on the day of preparation for the feast of the Passover, which would have been a Thursday. Now, to our way of thinking, we say there's a contradiction. We've got to rationalize that. We've got to figure that out somehow. How do we, how do we get beyond that? But to the ancient Eastern writer of that day, there's no problem. The day of preparation is was the day on which the lambs were slain for Passover. So by mentioning in John's Gospel that Jesus died on a Thursday, it was a way to identify him as the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And for those writers, that truth was more important than whether he died on a Thursday or a Friday. You see, there's a a difference in the way we, we understand sometimes We need to look for the deeper truth always the danger in proof texting and by that i mean we pull one passage out of scripture and we take it out of context and we try to use it in a way that suits our own thinking and our own way of living that props up our cultural beds and the biases that we all live with too often proof texting and i've known folks to do this and, and you have too maybe you've been victimized by it people take a passage of scripture they pull it out they fashion it into some kind of hammer and they use it to beat people with until you believe like they do and that's not proper that's not Christ like volumes have been written about this area of biblical interpretation and we've only just scratched the surface don't be scared off though from reading scripture because you don't have all before you all the scholarly data and all the historical interpretation and all those other kind of things. We don't have to have that. We can read it and listen and encourage the Holy Spirit and God will speak to us through that scripture and we can grow in our understanding as we go along the way. But you don't have to have it all figured out before you preferably read and listen to the Holy Scripture. John Wesley November 26 it was a Thursday 1739 he said I showed concerning the Holy Scriptures one that to search that is read and hear them is a command of God number two that this command is given to all persons number three that this command is ordained as a means of grace a way of understanding and experiencing the grace of God which was meant for all persons and we can do that as we read scripture If the Bible's to be authoritative for us as Christian folks, we've got to read it and we've got to study it. It does us little good if we leave it on the coffee table or on the bookshelf. We're to read it. It's not just a romance novel, though there's romance in it, and it's not just a mystery legal thriller, though that's in there as well, but it's significant and weighs way beyond other books. We can read it alone. We can read it in family settings. We can read it in small groups or Sunday school classes. We can read it in worship. It is important. It is our textbook. Don't just be comfortable because you have one in your house somewhere that's good. It's meant to be read. Let me close with these words were found in the Reverend Billy Sunday's Bible after he died. He wrote 20 years ago With the Holy Spirit as my guide, I entered the wonderful temple of Christianity. I entered at the portico of Genesis, walked down through the Old Testament art galleries where pictures of Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joseph and Isaac and Jacob and Daniel were hung on the walls. I passed into the music room of the Psalms where it seemed that every reed and pipe in God's great organ was tuned to the tuneful harp of David, the sweet singer of Israel. I entered the chamber of Ecclesiastes, where the voice of the preacher was heard, and into the conservatory of Sharon, where the lily of the valley's sweet-scented spices filled and perfumed my life. I entered the business office of Proverbs, and then into the observatory room of the prophets, where I saw telescopes of various sizes pointed to far-off events, but all concentrated on the bright and morning star. I entered the audience room of the King of Kings, and A vision of his glory from the standpoint of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John passed into the Acts of the Apostles where the Holy Spirit was doing its work in the formation of the infant church. Then into the correspondence room where sat Paul, Peter, James, and John pinning their epistles. I stepped into the throne room of Revelation where towered the glittering peaks and seeing the vision of the king sitting upon the throne In all of his glory, I cried out, All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate foe. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Amen.